Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, November 13th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about the third episode of Disney Plus's The Mandalorian Season 2, The Heiress. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And special guest from Star Wars Insider, StarWars.com, the fullest podcast, and Star and a little site called SlashFilm.com, Brian Young. That sounds like me. Yeah. Uh, okay, so last week we talked about uh, Chapter 10, and uh, there was a couple things that happened there. Uh, we, we got some clarifications on. Uh, there was those spiders that were inspired by the Ralph McQuarrie painting from Empire Strikes Back. Uh, we were theorizing that they could, they might be the Krikna from Star Wars Rebels. But I think we got clarification that it's not exactly the same species. Yeah, um, Phil Shostak from Lucasfilm uh, came out and said that while they are not the same species, they are both definitely inspired by the same piece of Ralph McQuarrie art. So, uh, you know, they, they're they definitely mining that territory, even even in the, the smallest of things. It was interesting. I don't know if you if you looked, but the post product or the pre-production art that they showed uh, in, during the credits of the last episode, if you look at the pre-production art of that spider you, and uh, next to the Ralph McQuarrie painting, you can see that they just digitally lifted that entire spider into a new environment for the pre-production art. So um, <laughs> That's it, funny. it's exactly the same one. They just Photoshopped one into the other. So, um, but yeah, so it's, it's still from the same source and maybe they're related the same way Vulcans and Romulans are, but uh, maybe that's mixing my metaphors. um another clarification we got is on the ice planet they were on we we were coming up with theories that it could be ilum which i don't think is we none of us actually believe that we just like quoted that as a fun thing but we brad i think we actually learned what the planet is 
Yeah, so um, if you were paying close attention during the episode, you can actually see on uh, the display of the Razor Crest that there's some Arabesh, the Star Wars text um, that can be translated. And a fan took the time to look at it, and they were able to figure out that the ice planet in question from uh, that episode is Maldo Crease. Um, there was some confusion because some people thought that this was the same planet uh, that Mando was on, a, same, a similar ice planet um, early in the first season, I believe in the first episode even. Uh, but it turns out that that planet is not Maldo Crease, but this one in the most recent episode is. <laughs> yeah, wires got crossed or something happened. But, lots, of, um, lots of ice planets out there. Yeah, uh, what else do we have to talk about uh, from last week's episode uh let's let's talk about uh, oh tom l right wrote in and he asked this question did you guys find it odd that mando kept zero's body on board the razor crest i'm still trying to unpack that decision for instance was it a character-based choice or a writer-based choice the former could yield something at some point but i am not sure i trust favreau that is some of mando's actions may not say anything about mando's personality what do you think so I guess he's asking that because like Mando at that point did not like droids. So why would he have kept the droid's body? Maybe because it's like a more, I don't know, valuable droid. And maybe if he ever needed to trade it or something that he could uh, use it that way or even use its parts for something. Or it could have even been that uh, he could have been maybe thinking about trading a bounty in on it. I mean, as yeah. a bounty hunter, usually he could have a bounty on it. But uh, he ran into Zero, and, and all of that, that business happened with Zero before Quill had died. And so maybe part of it was also offering, you know, maybe he would have planned on letting Quill have it, or Quill was uh, using it and repairing IG-11. Um, and it just was leftover detritus from all of that situation. And, and I also think, like, he was... Uh, decommissioned right like there was no way that droid was going to come back to life unless someone rewired it which they did um so it's not like there's nothing to be afraid of well put and technically he's not necessarily back to life even when the frog lady activates him it's it's basically like she took a a human head and is talking through it yeah yeah for (laughs) sure a lot of people were really um i don't know uh, freaked out about the baby Yoda eating the eggs like way more than I thought when I brought up that concern to you guys last week like there was lots of articles online of people just like you know he's committing genocide (laughs) basically these headlines uh what did you guys think of that reaction I think I think what happened was is there there were there were some people that that I saw online that had some really legitimate concerns, right? Like they were um, women who had experienced miscarriages or infertility, and it was really sensitive for them to see the 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 child consuming those eggs, right? Like women who have been through in vitro fertilization, like every one of those eggs is super valuable, and you know once you have them, uh, there is a finite number of them, and you know, what happens if you run out and what happens if she ran out because of, of baby Yoda. And I don't think that it was like, I don't think the complaints were like, Hey, this is awful and everything needs to be canceled. It was like, Hey, like this is something that we should pay attention to. And then there, people started picking up on it. And there were a lot of people who just kind of built on, on some of that, um, uh, they viewed that as like, oh, these people are just online rage, uh, you know, pushing back against Lucasfilm, which I don't think anybody necessarily um, 
I, I don't think anybody at Lucasfilm necessarily felt yeah. like they were being attacked or anything. And some websites picked up some very snarky titled articles uh, about it and it just sort of snowballed from there and then people online started making fun of it not really investigating further into what the issue was the people who were actually um genuinely sort of disturbed by it and it just kind of turned into like look at these crazy star wars fans being crazy but i i don't think the origin of that was actually um that crazy yeah, yeah, I think uh, how you explained it, how it, like the snowball rolled down the hill, uh, is basically how it happened. Uh, I also do an Ordinary Adventures live chat every Saturday afternoon about this week's Mandalorian episode. And during that live chat, uh, someone in the chat room brought up a possibility of what could have happened with Baby Yoda and the eggs. It didn't come true. So it's, it, it ended up being not like a, a theory that didn't end up panning out. But I wanted to bring it up to you guys because I, I, I've already talked about this with Brad. I know that um, that basically the person had a theory that Baby Yoda wasn't actually eating the eggs because we didn't see him chewing the eggs. He was like just swallow, swallowing them whole. And thus he was actually he sensed that something was going to go wrong. Something bad was going to happen to the eggs. So he was actually storing them. He was saving some of the eggs of this, you know, uh, her last batch, her last lifeline of her of her uh, her kind or her uh, uh, bloodline. Um, and that in this episode, you know, the eggs would get destroyed and then we'd see Baby Yoda, you know, David Blaine style. If you've seen him regurgitate the frogs, uh, regurgitate the eggs to save the day. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why, but I like as these headlines came out. Uh, of like the the genocide headlines and stuff like that, I started to st- start believing this crazy theory. What do you guys think about that theory? I mean, it's it's definitely a fun theory, and I, I wish it is something that they actually would have done because there is like foundation in um, real uh, amphibians where there's um, there's an Australian frog where they they swallow fertilized eggs and they remain in the female stomach undigested until they hatch as tadpoles, and then she regurgitates them alive. So that would have been an interesting thing for them uh, to do. And, I, I, you know, I, I wish that it would have been just so that the complaints were like, oh, OK, well, now we understand. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, at the same time, you know, I <laughs> I just I feel like, you know, he he's he's a child. And how many times do children put things in their mouth that they know they're not supposed to? And like, it's not really a malicious thing. They're just he's just a kid, even though he's a 50 year old kid. <laughs> If they had gone that way, though, I think it would have demonstrated that he knows a little bit more than what we think. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think you're right. I think he's a child and he doesn't know any better. But it would have been interesting to have that swerve of like, oh, he's more aware of what's going on than we think. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, and lastly, the only other thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, oh, wait, no, two things. Uh, we learned that Carl Weathers is directing next episode. I think episode four of the season. So that's interesting. And also there was this meme going around. I'm not sure if you guys saw it, but it was like a, the frog lady's Uber review. She gave one star. It said the driver nearly got arrested, took five hours to get to the destination. We crashed at least three times with no seatbelt. Also his weird green dog kept eating my eggs. I don't know. Yeah. I found that hilarious. Uh, okay, let's get to chapter 11, because I think we've gone on enough about chapter 10. Uh, 
So this is directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. It's written by John Favreau. Uh, I'll give you my quick thoughts here. Uh, you know, I was nervous because Bryce Dallas Howard directed my least favorite episode of this series in season one. Um, the the Seven Samurai kind of episode. Uh, this is a big improvement over her season one episode. I would I would venture to say that this might be the best episode so far of the series. So, in my mind, Bryce Dallas Howard has directed the best and the worst episodes of The Mandalorian, which is kind of crazy. Uh, I almost want to be mad that this episode is 35 minutes. You know, the first was 54, the second was 41. This is much shorter, but it was so good. And uh, what was it that George Lucas used to give us direction, like, faster and more intense? Yeah. I feel like that's what this episode was. It was faster and more intense in like a good way. I'm not, you know, making fun of it. I had some fun appearances, uh, you know, asked some interesting questions, added some lore to, you know, the the Mandalorians. And uh, I think it's sending the season in, in an interesting direction. Brad, what did you think? Yeah, I love this episode as well. It's um, it definitely ranks among my favorite. I'm not sure if it's my absolute favorite, but it's it's easily in at least like the top three uh, of the entire series so far. And I actually didn't uh, see that Bryce Dallas Howard directed this episode until it was over when the credits started rolling. So I was like, oh, okay, that's that's surprising. Um, and it's yeah, she definitely improved, especially when it comes to the action, because I think that her directing of action in the episode that she directed in the first season was. Uh, a big problem of what I had of how she, um, sh- you know, showed her skills as a director. But here, uh, the action is fantastic, and there's uh, there's a lot going on, a lot to take in, and it, I think this is probably the biggest progression of the overarching uh, plot and character arc that we've had for for Mando and other characters in this series. And uh, we're definitely getting to the point where like things are starting to to heat up for this season, and I'm uh, really excited to see where this takes us. Brian, what did you think? I think the the sort of cause and effect quest chain of this season is really helping give this season an overall focus that that maybe the first season lacked a little bit. Like the first season felt a little bit all over the place, and this season feels like a journey. And I really loved that about this episode. And to like, I really liked this episode for how I feel like it stood on its own as a really great action set piece, but also how it ties into the broader Star Wars universe, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about more over the the, the course of the rest of the next uh, over the the course of the podcast. But to to tag up on some of Bryce Dallas Howard's work, like I think this had some of the best. Um, visual storytelling that we've seen on the show. I really loved the way she designed the editing around some of the gags, but also some of the um, juxtapositions, right? I really loved the way they built the um, the editing and the audio and the, just the performances in general around the, the cargo control room gag. Um, I really loved the way that she was able to juxtapose the child versus the violence um, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the score uh, and its, ju- its juxtaposition in, in the two moments. But there was a lot of really sort of next level filmmaking that was going on here that wasn't necessarily on display in episode four in, uh, of the, the first season. But I will say, like, I really I really love that they just keep sticking Bryce Dallas Howard with the, the fishing village aesthetic. 
<laughs> and I hope that they just keep that going. Like maybe next season, if she directs another episode, it's almost it almost has to be in a fishing village. Yeah, it has to be a fishing metropolis, like a city, a fishing city. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, let's get into it. Let's talk. Uh, it, this episode starts with an almost lifeless Razor Crest drifting down towards a planet. Uh, it's barely holding together. And one engine is boosting. Uh, it lands without all the usual systems, and the ship almost finds its uh, its home on the dock, but narrowly f- falls into the water. Um, I love how, first of all, I don't think we've ever seen in Star Wars, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it was in the animated series, but I don't think we've ever seen like a ship entering the atmosphere and seeing it with the flames around it, kind of like we see with like the space shuttles and the... Uh, uh, the uh, what do you call that when Re- Revenge of the Sith? Is it in Revenge of the Sith? Yeah, when when the um, the, when the, the capital, the Invisible Hand, Grievous's ship, yeah, it f- oh, is coming in, falls to wow. sound, yeah. And the were, fire ships come in and say like we're putting the fire out, and then they they were yeah. coming in too hot. I am totally wrong then, uh, <laughs> but I don't know. I I, I I like the the whole visuals here. Um, the title of the episode, the Eris. Uh, you know, again, this continues the the in the line of titles of the at the beginning of, of the episodes. Uh, there's only been two episodes that didn't have the in it. Um, this past week, the Rotten Tomatoes had a list of titles for the season. Many people thought it leaked onto Rotten Tomatoes. This confirms that it did not leak because this does ma- not match up with the bounty which was the title on Rotten Tomatoes. So that is false. Um, I mean, if I were coming up with generic titles for this show, the bounty would certainly be on that list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so who is the heiress? I think there's there's two people that are the heiress. And I think that this is one of those things that I really loved about this episode was the thematic um, juxtapositions between Bo-Katan, Kreese, uh, played by Katie Sackhoff. But I think... In another way, thematically, the heiress is also the tadpole that the frog lady has birthed and that both of them are, are um, obsessed with their line and what that means. And when Bo-Katan talks about um, that she's the end of her line, she turns to revenge and trying to right that wrong in some way that's not going to extend her line. The frog lady does the opposite. She chooses peace and trying to extend it. And so I think that the title actually works just as well for that tadpole or the frog lady as it does with Bo-Katan. That, that is fantastic reading. Um, okay. So we see this uh, almost like an at, at like walking vehicle, but it has a crane and it pulls the ship out of the water, which is, I'm not sure if this is intentional, but, you know, I used to live in San Francisco, and when I lived there, everybody used to tell me in the bay over by Oakland, there's these, like, cranes at the at the dock that supposedly inspired George Lucas to create the AT-ATs or AT-ATs, whatever you want to call them. Uh, when I talked to George Lucas uh, for the Clone Wars animated movie, uh, he confirmed to me that, that, that those did not inspire him. But but it was like a widespread like myth. It was like if you go to San Francisco or the Bay Area, it's something that everybody there living there always tells people. Um, so I'm wondering if this is kind of like a nod to that. What do you, what do you think, Brian? 
That was my assumption, actually. In fact, uh, when I wrote up my piece for Slash Film, I was looking for that rumor because I've heard it a trillion times and I don't live in the Bay Area. And uh, the article I found to link in in my piece was actually a piece you wrote in 2008 <laughs> uh, debunking yeah. that. But I've heard that sort of thing and I've heard um, Phil Shostak, who, who works with the art team on The Mandalorian, talk about that specifically and he's debunked that on twitter before and so i know the team on the mandalorian is aware of that and so i could i could very easily see that being a, a very fun wink and a nod to those people uh, because it looks very much like those cargo containers for exact or cargo container cranes for exactly the same reason that you would have it in that port in on trask yeah side note to that there is also, after that being debunked, there are some people out there that say that some of the, the artists at Lucasfilm and ILM, that, you know, they all live in the Bay Area and that while George has debunked that they're based on those things at the dock in Oakland, that some of the artists that might have contributed to the look of the at-ats might have been inspired. So, so whatever, whatever. Um, uh so what is this planet that they land on? This is the, is this what they, they talked about in the previous ep episode Trask or the moon of Trask? Yeah. The, the black market port of Trask as, uh, as Bo-Katan refers to it. And this is a new planet in star Wars and it's, you know, full of water, which makes sense for the locale that has decided to settle there, whether it's frog people who really should get names both as a species and as characters, especially since they were so vital to the story of this episode and last. Um, it is but funny it's... because I, I watch the show with subtitles on because often they actually give you names of people that aren't spoken on on air in, in the episodes. But, you know, it always just referred to the as the frog lady or the, the frog man. So it's weird that they didn't yeah. get names. And then the, the, the rest of the, the people there are Mon Calmari and Korans, who are both um, uh, native to the, the planet Moncala, which we saw quite a bit in Clone Wars uh, with a lot of significant war going on there. But this, is, this seems like a, a much more rough and tumble group of these people and maybe a little bit less technologically advanced than, you know, maybe the, the Mon Calmari that joined up with the Rebellion. Yeah. So on this planet, Mando pays Mon Calamari to fix his ship. Um, well, let's talk about this this setting here. It's like this cool, like looking dock on a water planet. H have we seen anything like this in Star Wars before? I don't think we have. Revenge of the Sith. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, I I think you're right. I think the closest we might have come is Sorgan from Bryce Dallas Howard's last episode um we haven't seen a lot of fishing villages maybe the closest would be luke skywalker's fishing in the last jedi but uh nothing nothing like this it looks uh like a combination of something out of like you know robert altman's popeye or pirates of the caribbean like tortuga but with that star wars aesthetic and yeah i, I just don't think we've seen a whole lot like this we haven't seen a whole lot of boats in star wars either so the frog lady reunites with her husband. It's really a sweet moment. And uh, he thanks Mando and directs him to the inn to find people who look like him. Uh, by the way, I, I want, 
I'm not sure if I said this in the last episode, but I want Disney to to release an aquarium that looks like a replica of the Frog Lady's egg incubator. <laughs> so I'm putting that out there. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Um, okay, so we see... Uh, what is her actual name? She's Sasha Banks in WWE. What is the actress's name? Do you know? What, what, what WWE character? Sasha, Sasha Banks. Um, so the it's credited. The character is... Uh, Mercedes Varnado. Okay, so that's her real name then. Uh, yeah. Or, or her state, I don't know. I don't know. Is Mercedes a real name? Maybe. Okay, uh, she's seen there in a hood, watching from across the way, and then is gone. Uh, I remember when the trailer came out, people thought that she was going to be playing Sabine because she normally has, like, this dyed hair in her wrestling personality. Um, so, okay, we're in the inn, which is basically another cantina. Every planet we go to on mandalorian we go to cantina and uh mando orders some chowder for the for the child and offers some money to the waiter to help find more of his kind um first of all i think it's interesting here that we see a a little bit of a callback because mando i'm not sure if you remember this but in season one the beginning of season one he was paid for one of the bounties in some like mont calamari currency we calamari flan yeah yeah we get to see him using it here that's kind of fun um and i love that the bowls in this place are like filled up with a hose that comes from the ceiling why can't we get a place like this in like galaxy's edge i, I want to eat like soup that comes from a hose in the ceiling <laughs> that would be rad didn't they have like a dinner theater sort of situation planned and then ditched it or they've incorporated it into the um, yeah. galactic star cruiser but i think it was like a more of a high-end thing so i don't think we'll ever Get to I don't know. This spouts from the ceiling pumping out chowder seems pretty high end to me, Peter. Imagine if you were eating your chowder and like like this animatronic puppet came out of it, like a, like a tentacle puppet. I don't know. Okay, I'm asking too much here. Uh, the child begins to eat, eat his chowder, and an uh, octopus-like creature jumps out at uh, Baby Yoda and grabs his face, almost like a face hugger in Alien. And Mando says, "Don't play with your food." Which I think is so funny. Uh, so uh, an alien guy approaches and offers to bring Mando to other Mandalorian, but it's a few hours out by boat. Uh, what species did you say this was, Brian? These are Corrin. Uh, these were first seen in Return of the Jedi. Uh, one of Jabba's henchmen was a Corrin named Tessek, and he was the action figure everybody had from that species because that was the only one they made. And they live on Mon Calamari with the, the Mon Cal's um, and they don't get along very well. So it looks like they're getting along much better here now than they were on their home planet, which also, you know, uh, also referred to as DAC. I don't I'm not sure if that's the planet name that's a little bit more friendly to the Corrin because they aren't necessarily excluded from that. Uh, the way they are when everybody calls it Moncala, but whatever. Interesting. Okay, so we see them on a boat with a bunch of Quarrens. Uh, one of the, one of them asks Mando, "Have you ever you ever see a Mama Cor eat? Is Mama Cor a new creature? I don't think I've ever seen that before." Yeah, this seems new. I mean, we haven't seen a whole lot of um, 
a whole lot of aquatic creatures, and this was its first appearance as far as I can tell. And what what are the Quarrens doing with this Mamacore in the, like, what is that, like the hull of the ship? I don't know what you call that area. Uh, I mean, I think they're doing the same thing with it that, that they would do, like, like, why does Jabba have a pit with a Rancor in it? Yeah. Uh. Good point. Good point. Okay, so they lower some fish into the water hole in the center of the ship and feed the creature, but it, it, it's this was all like a rouge of some kind. They throw the child in, and he in his prim, and he's eaten by the creature. Mando jumps in to save the child, and as he does so, they close the cage on top of him, and uh, it turns out that they just wanted the Beskar from his armor, so they were they were using him. Uh, I guess. Uh, sh- sh- <laughs> Uh, should Mando have known this was a trap when he got got to this planet and, and saw the Mon Calamari on the dock? I'm sorry, <laughs> I, had to, I had to ask. Okay, uh, three three Mandalorians land on a on the boat, uh, coming to the rescue. They open uh, the cage and pull Mando out. Uh, I also noticed here that the way they pull him out from the water, reaching their hand out. Seems to be a visual callback to Chapter 8, uh, the flashback of Mando as a child being saved by the Mandalorians. Like, they pulled him out of that, like, little uh, bunker or that... Uh, yeah, area. yeah. I also thought it was sort of um, designed to really give a close-up of both of the insignias on their uh, on their hands, on their gloves, too. Because I think that was a giveaway that that was Bo-Katan at that point as well. Yeah, uh, Mando tells her the creature has the uh, the, the child. Uh, one of them jumps in. We see uh, some flashes down below, and she flies out of the water and presents Mando back with the child. Um, I think it's worth noting here that the child's prim seems to be completely destroyed, and without uh, who rebuilt it last season? Was it Quill? So I don't think Quill's around. So I yeah, he might be. He, he might be out of luck. Or yeah. buy a new one. Need to buy a new one. Let me one. just say, too, that that shot of him getting kicked into that mouth was, like, such a jarring, shocking, terrifying thing. You're like, <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> it was out of nowhere. And, the- and that overhead shot of the baby getting sucked into the mama core, too, was perfect. Yeah. It was just, yeah. it felt very much like a, an homage to the Sarlacc Pit shots. And it was, yeah, frightening. Like, I didn't necessarily expect the double cross, and it was well well received when it happened. Yeah, so we have three Mandalorians here. I don't know how you guys want to uh, approach this. Uh, I, I guess let's say uh, Mando is surprised, believing they... Well, he's surprised because they, they removed their masks, and that's not something the Mandalorians do in or at least that's not something that mando thinks mandalorians do so he's surprised and he believe uh, like he believes that might be like Cobb vanth and ask them you know where did you get that armor and uh you know they explain they've had the the armor for three generations and he says you are not mandalorian so i guess i, I guess the question is brian who are these mandalorians so bo-katan Kreese is the um, sister of Satine Kreese, who used to be the ruler of Mandalore. Bo-Katan used to be the ruler of Mandalore as well. Bo-Katan also used to be a member of Death Watch. 
which was a splinter sect that wanted to return Mandalore to its warrior ways. She refers to the sect of of Mandalorians that uh, Din Djarin is part of, uh, sort of almost, uh, you know, disparagingly as the children of the Watch and sort of calls them religious zealots who don't even want to go back to the old ways, but the ancient ways. And so uh, Bo-Katan and these, these, um, her night owl companion, who, who is Cosca uh, Reeves, which is the, the Sasha, Sasha Banks character. They have these night owl sorts of helmets and night owls were Bo-Katan's sort of all female uh, cadre in the Death Watch and beyond that, who helped put together the coalition that helped win her Mandalore and the Darksaber in the Rebels TV series. Um I feel like we've gotten really into the weeds here and, and I blame myself. But, 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 but you did say that it was a female group and there is a male here. Well, so he doesn't have the night owl like helmet. He's wearing a normal Mando helmet. The night owls are sort of marked by their, the, the shape of the eyes are more like owl sorts of eyes uh, on their helmet. And you'll notice that that's, that's part of that. But as leader of Mandalore, she was followed by everyone, not just her, her night owls. Okay, one other thing I wanted to bring up in this conversation is uh, the male. Uh, I think his name is Axe Wolf- Wolves. Something. Axe Woves. Woves. Um, he says he is one of them, and which Bo-Katan replies, Dank Ferrick, which is something we've heard before. We heard about that in chapter one of the series. That blue alien guy said it when they were escaping. And I thought at the time that that meant, thank God but I don't think that means thank God now, right? He's one of them. Thank God. I don't know. I don't feel like that. Like, I don't feel like so you're happy about it. The, the context I got, because um, Mando uses it earlier in this episode as well. Uh, he uses it right at the beginning as they're going to crash. And, and he kind of says it. And from the context of the three times it's appeared in star Wars, I get the impression. It's sort of a little bit of a, a catch all phrase that means anything between Thank God and Jesus Christ, right? Okay. It, it, it kind of captures all of that uh, nuance depending on how it's delivered, and it it gets delivered in context both ways. So I, I searched around to see if there's any official translation of it, and there's not. But just based on going back and looking at that context for all three uses of it, that's my best guess, uh, at least based on how it's used. Okay, so uh, like you said, she ex- informs him that she is Bo-Katan of the clan's craze, uh, born on Mandalore and fought in the Purge. She is the last of her line. Uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, this is kind of a, a mirror in yeah. some ways, a, a, a reverted mirror of the uh, the Frog Lady. So that's kind of and interesting. It also bodes well, or not well, it bodes ill for Cor- Corky Crees who was her nephew and Satine's nephew, who was a young man on Mandalore during the Clone Wars series, uh, that it this implies that he didn't make it out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably th- during the Night of the Thousand Tears, right? Um, so, uh, so, so this is interesting uh, because it establishes that there's still bloodborne Mandalorians out there 
after the night of a thousand tears or the purge or whatever you want to call it is that the same thing i'm assuming it's the same thing right I think my guess is the purge is the overall campaign and the night of a thousand tears was either the very beginning of it or the yeah. end of it. Uh, so she explains uh, he was a, a child of watch, a, a cult of religious zealots who broke away from the Mandalorian society with the goal to reestablish the ancient way. Uh, it night of the watch does like that. Does that mean death watch? I, I think they're a splinter group of Death Watch, right? Where Death Watch was like, yeah, we're going to go. We're going to bring everything back to our warrior past. And then there was people like the armorer who was like, screw you guys. You're still taking off your helmets and you're not the true, you know, we're, we're the Reformation Church of Mandalore, really. And and they took off to do that because there were definitely Vizlas involved, like uh, pre-Vizla and Paz-Vizla, um, so so there's there's probably some connection there. We saw that they had Death Watch insignias when they rescued Din Djarin in the in the first place. And so my guess is it's it's very much that there was a split between Death Watch and the children of the watch and they like I, and even the name implies like hey, we were born out of Death Watch, we're the children of the watch, but we're the one true you know faith. This is the way. And <laughs> And, and broke off on their own, especially when you take into account the Death Watch. Um, Bo-Katan was from Death Watch and Pre Vizsla was from Death Watch and they all had no problems taking off their helmets. So seeing that more orthodox uh, strand hiding out a little more, it, it makes sense to me. I forget who said this, but we heard last season one of the creatives or maybe even Bob Iger said that it was going to get more like Game of Thrones-ish. And I'm starting to feel that here. Um, but, uh, okay. So, uh, Mando is not down with this. He takes off with the child. Uh, Brad, what do you think about, there's a lot being dropped here. What do you think about the expansion of the Mandalorian lore here? And yeah, what do you think this means for the future of the series? I mean, I like the complexity that it, that it adds here. It, you know, creates the possibility that there might be, you know, warring factions among the Mandalorians, you know, um, much in the same way, you know, that we see extreme behavior among, you know, real life uh, religious organizations, you know, here in our society, you know, there are some who uh, are much more, you know, considerably more conservative than than others, others who are more more progressive. And it's it could turn out to be, you know, an interesting way to sort of, you know, represent real life moral and ethical quandaries that exist between various religious organizations. Um, so I think, I think that's definitely interesting on top of the fact that, like you said, you know, this sort of Game of Thrones dynamic of Bo-Katan trying to take back her rightful place as the leader of Mandalore and get everybody back together, you know, and so you have to wonder, you know, whether Din Djarin will be drawn to, you know, who these other Mandalorians are that he's not aware of, or if he'll, you know, if he'll struggle with remaining, remaining loyal to those who raised him and saved him, uh, and essentially gave him his code. So, you know, it's, it's definitely making Mando that much more of an interesting character, you know, because so far, you know, we've learned a little bit of his backstory, but he's, he hasn't been super interesting as a, as a character. He's had little developments here and there, but he's not too dissimilar from, you know, what we recognize Boba Fett to be just this badass bounty hunter. And we, you know, he's obviously softened his heart because of the, the child and his relation, um, his similarities that he shares as far as his past being, uh, abandoned and um, not having anyone to take care of him until he was saved. And then we've seen him evolve as far as his perception of droids, at least somewhat. 
Um, but I think this, you know, stands to be probably the most uh, interesting change as, as far as what's happening in his life and how he perceives the world and the Mandalorians around him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's kind of presented with, I mean, evidence or like like that, you know, Mandalorians aren't necessarily the way that he believed them to be. You know, it's challenging his beliefs and he seems really unwilling to even consider that as a possibility. He storms off, you know, so this there, there's only one way, the way of the Mandalorians and like storms off. Right. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, will he come to a place where he like realizes that maybe Mandalorians is something in between what the ancients believed and what the, the, you know, the real blooded Mandalorians that are still alive believe. And, uh, maybe I, I kind of believe that we're going to end off there because I, I, I believe, uh, that at one point, you know, Pedro is going to like not have his helmet on for a good portion of this show anymore, but I could be wrong. Um, I mean, if know, not, I heard he's walking <laughs> and I don't think that's based on th- those rumors. I just think that no, like, just it, it makes sense, right? Like it makes sense yeah. to eventually have the human show. show I don't know. Well, I think I think what's interesting about it is that the armorer tells him to seek out other Mandalorians and he does. And as he's learning about other Mandalorians, he's learning about the rich variety of the culture that he didn't know anything about because he was inculcated in one specific uh, flavor of that culture. And he's going to have to come to terms with that. And I'm not sure he necessarily likes Bo-Katan's brand, I think. Um, he feels very bullied into taking the mission and then taking it further than he wants. And he doesn't necessarily trust her word because she's not as um, firm or resolute in what her word means as he might be or, or how he might perceive the creed to be. But uh, yeah, whether or not he would unite under Bo-Katan as ruler of Mandalore or try to install maybe the armor or even himself in that role is anybody's guess and maybe maybe that's where this is heading i think you also have to wonder too uh maybe how much the armorer or any other mandalorians know about this other sect still being out there maybe they all really still think that they're gone because you would think that maybe she would not be so you know willing to tell uh dinjarin go find other mandalorians knowing that he could very well find that what she would conceive as the wrong mandalorians but she also was in a situation where, like, it looked like it, they were all pretty much dead. Everybody else, very few of them escaped. She stayed to um, fight off the last of them. And so if it's sort of her last breath of, like, listen, the children of the Watch are pretty much over. We need to go out and meet other Mandalorians and, and bring them back together. Um, you know, one of the great stories in Mandalorian history and legends right is is of mandalore the uniter who who brought all of the clans together under one roof originally and that was something that was really central to bo-katan's story in rebels where the uh you had a few different factions of mandalorians sort of vying for that control in the time of the empire where some were willing to sell it out to the empire. Some were trying to stay honorable and neutral and pacifist and others were trying to fight against that. And Bo-Katan was able to sort of unite them into something that I think is what led to the purge. Hmm. Okay. We need to get back to the episode. Uh, we see this beautiful wide shot with three Mandalorian jetpacking 
from the ship and it blowing up with the sun setting in the background. It looks, you know, absolutely beautiful. I, I feel like this season in particular, even more so than last season, I can really feel the amazing concept art being translated into the live action almost like perfectly. Like, I feel like there's more like shots. I'm like, oh, that that definitely was like, you know, a, a piece. Um, Every frame a painting. Yes. Uh, the Quarrens confront and surround Mando on the docks. He's asked. He asked for passage, but they want revenge for the death of his brother. Um, I guess this is a question for you, Brian. Are, I heard the corns on the ship all calling each other brother. This guy is mad because, you know, Mando killed his brother. Are the corns all related or the, do they just refer to each other as brothers? Uh, you know, we haven't had a whole lot of exposure with them. Um, so maybe all of these guys, or maybe it's just a really big family. Um, you know, the first time I watch the episode, I don't do it with subtitles on the first time. I do it the second time with subtitles while I'm writing my piece. Yeah. And I thought he called the Mama Core the Mama Corn. And I was like, this could be really interesting. Maybe they are all, they are all brothers or something. <laughs> um, That'd be funny. Yeah. Um, but and maybe it's just this group of them. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, the... <laughs> they, 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 the, the three Mandalorian come to his aid... They say, can we at least buy you a drink? Now we're back at the, the inn, and it is explained to Mando that Trask is a black market port, and they're staging, a we- uh, they're staging weapons built with the plunders from Mandalore. Uh, they have a plan to seize the weapons and use them to retake their homeworld and put, Mandalore, Mandalore, uh, put a Mandalorian on the throne. Uh, Mando says uh, that Mandalore is cursed. Anyone who goes there dies. Once the Empire knew they couldn't control it, they made sure that no one else could either. And Bo-Katan says, don't believe everything you hear. What do you think actually happened here? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing we're going we're gonna to learn more about this, but uh, this is all like new territory, right? Like, we don't really know what is going on Mandalore at this time or what happened to it. Correct. And it sounds like what happened was in Rebels, they were already working on sort of super weapons that could attack just Mandalorians with uh, the weapon called the Duchess that Sabine Wren had designed, but she exploded it so that they wouldn't be able to use it against the Mandalorians. And once the Imperial loyalists had been killed uh, by Sabine and and that group, and they turned the Darksaber over to Bo-Katan, the last thing we see is that them... Uh, them being united and willing to fight against the empire in support of the rebellion, which they'd done in very small ways through rebels. They helped at the battle of Adalon to help the rebels escape to Yavin um, so that they were, they were able to build that base up there. And this finally brought them all together near the end of the series. And um, so my guess is what happened is, is they brought other super weapons there to, um, uh, you know, either irradiate the planet or c- commit a genocide. But this is the same thing they did with Geonosis, right? The Geonosians knew too much uh, about the Death Star. So they they purged the planet with poisonous gas, which is something that sort of came out through um, Star Wars Rebels as well. And I can imagine them doing the same thing with, with Mandalore, where they're just such renowned warriors. Let's get rid of them because they can cause us a problem. 
Well, uh, Bo-Katan explains that they're trying to divide them, but Mandalores are stronger together, which speaks to your previous point. Uh, Bo-Katan uh, offers to help him find the Jedi if he will help him with the mission. So again, Brian, and Brad, it becomes a, a mission of the week. I mean, it, it becomes more integrated than that. But um, I, I love this this quick shot of Sasha Banks's character slurping up one of those tentacle creatures from the chowder. I don't know. It's just a really cool, like fun sci-fi uh, moment. Uh, the mission is to steal weapons off the Imperial gun. How do you pronounce this freighter? Gon- it's, a Gozanti. it's a Gozanti. Um, a Gozanti class Imperial freighter. Yeah. We've seen these ships before. I remember seeing them taking off in the background in Phantom Menace on Tatooine, and I think they were an attack of the clones. And I, I like to call them a Dave Filoni special because I think they built like the 3D model for them. So they used them a ton in Rebels and Clone Wars. Yeah, they were in Clone Wars a ton and they were mentioned in um, some some Darth Maul stuff. And, and they're yeah, they're all over the place in the galaxy. So Mando leaves the most important thing in the galaxy with strangers. He leaves the child with uh, frog people, tells him to mind his manners and be respectful. The child is peering into the egg tank and we see one of the, I want to call it a tadpole being born. I don't know. Maybe it's a little frog creature. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, The ship takes off and the four Mandalorians jetpack onto it and take out the trooper security. Uh, Here's where we're introduced to Titus Wilver, who uh, people might know as the man in black from Lost. Um, I've recently been watching a lot of Bosch on Amazon, so I'm going to call him Bosch for now. Uh, he, he's also uh, our third Deadwood alumni this season. Oh, wow. I didn't even know he was in Deadwood. I have not seen Deadwood. Um, he plays an Imperial officer in charge of this vessel, and he is informed that pirates have made their way on board. And actually we also get the indication that these pirates are a thing that like a thorn inside of the, the, you know, the, the remnants of the empire, or at least in this area, like they've been attacking before. There's that conversation that they have when Bo-Katan is explaining the plan where she's like, um, when the Mando's like, well, we could just sneak aboard as stowaways. And I think it's, it's, uh, Costa who says like, we've been hitting them too hard. They're going to scan the ship before we leave. We have to hit them while they're in orbit or like in low orbit because we've been attacking them so much. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, he, he tells them to guard the hall and seal the hatch. Brad, you had a thought about that. Well, I mean, I, I feel like maybe it, it could just be a coincidence, but it seems kind of interesting that the man in black from Lost is telling them to seal the hatch. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a fun theory. I like it. I'll, I'll go with it. Um, there's a a great shot of the stormtrooper landing on the windshield of the, the ship. Uh, there's this cool hallway blaster fight, uh, but, you know, stormtroopers are easy targets. And uh, I think one of the funniest lines is one of the officers on the bridge asking, how many are there? And the stormtrooper reports back, hard to say, 10, maybe more. (laughs) And I love those two troopers uh, or the two pilots. For one, those pilots, I don't know what it is about how how, how they photographed them or costumed them, but they looked like they walked off the set of Return of the Jedi. 
It does. They, yeah. They they so looked like they nailed that look. And they're like, uh, there's only four of them, sir. Like, we, we've, we're only picking up four life signs. Yeah. So Bosch is told that they're headed for the cargo bay and they're Mandalorians. There's only four of them, but they're Mandalorians. Uh, he, he, This guy is not stupid. He sees what's happening here. He understands what the end game is. And he tells the pilots to climb now so they can get out of the atmosphere, so they can jump to hyperspace, you know, to thwart the plans of the Mandalorians. Uh, this is another episode where they built a hallway and I think they're just reusing the same hallway over and over again. Kind of like the prison escape episode, which is kind of, uh, neat. I think it actually works better in this episode than it did the prison escape episode. Um, they close the doors on the Mandalorians approaching the cargo bay, almost like, uh, the climactic moment of episode one, Finn Menace, where, uh, he's trapped between the, uh, the things in the mall fight. Um, but uh, they're trapping them in between the car in the cargo control area. And that, that's one of the funnest reveals of this episode. Did you guys want to talk about that? It was just a lot of fun. I really liked how that was designed with the, the back and forth between the, the Titus Welliver character and the sort of groveling cargo captain when he's like, where, like, where are they trapped? Where you see his gears turning, where he knows exactly what's going on, but the other guy's kind of too, too, too foolish to to put it together, and it was just a really great reveal. Um, I really love when they do that, where they show us what they're doing without actually having them stand around and go like, "What do we do? I don't know. Push those buttons, eject them." Like we just see the effects of it. It was just really efficient storytelling Also, this uh continues uh the mandalorian's tradition of giving minor roles to um kind of comedic day players essentially because uh the guy who gets sucked out of the cargo bay the officer is kevin dorf um and he's a writer who has uh written a ton for late night with conan o'brien uh and the tonight show when conan o'brien was on it uh, and he's also appeared in tons of tv shows from brooklyn 99 to parks and rec the office and, and a bunch of stuff hmm I also like how they are, like, with this, uh, the, the, the Bosch lieutenant guy, like, he's not just, like, a mindless, like, he feels more Thrawn in that, like, he is a thinker for himself. I mean, he's not, like, Thrawn, like, where he's, you know, six chess moves ahead of time, or a- ahead, but, like, he actually seems like an interesting character. I wish we got more more of him in this show, because I, I, I love that, like, the him realizing what they're doing as they're doing it kind of dynamic. And I wish like we, we could have that kind of Imperial character uh, in the show more. Usually they're like, you know, kind of buffoons in a way. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, they close the doors on the Mandalorians, parts of cargo bay, trapping them in between. Oh uh, yeah. They let the, they had the fun reveal where they fly out. Uh, the Mandos now have all the weapons. Bosch says, I'm sorry I keep on calling him Bosch, but that's what I'm going to call him. Bosch says that if they plan to escape and the, the the weapon with the weapons, he will hunt them down. Bo-Katan says they plan on taking the whole ship, not just the weapons. Uh, so here's where she explains to Mando that there, that there is something she needs uh, if she wants to rule the Mandalorians. Something that was once hers, and they now know where it is. Um, Bo-Katan basically changes the terms of the deal here. Uh, Mando is really not happy about this. It's not, uh, you know, 
something. <laughs> this is believe. not the way. <laughs> yeah, it's not what he believes Mandalorians do. Um, you know, Mandalorians are. I, I think we were told in the last episode when the frog lady said it, right? Like Mandalorians are uh, people of their word. Um, so uh, Bosch informs Moff Gideon about the hijacking and asks for immediate backup. Gideon says, if they've taken that much of the ship, it's too late and you know what to do. And I love the uh, the long live the Empire. <laughs> um, Bosch kills the pilots. Sets the ship in a plunge to crash, a suicide plunge to crash on the planet. Uh, the Mandalorians try to make their way to the bridge, but the the troops in the hallway have too much firepower. And Mando takes, like, he, he makes a run for it, throws some thermal detonators, uh, saves the day. Uh, you'll get you'll get some email about how those aren't thermal detonators if we don't correct that now. <laughs> oh, are they not thermal? De- what are they like grenades? No, they're just uh, they're just little explosives. Thermal detonators, I think, would have vaporized them. Um, Good point. But uh, I, I loved how he's making that run toward the stormtroopers, and they get a sh- he gets assured that they can't hit the side of a bantha, but like every shot hits him. <laughs> I thought what's kind of interesting too is you get an idea of how. Um, I guess durable the best car armor is because obviously we know it's good, but it but it operates in much in the same way that a bulletproof vest does, where he he can take laser shots, but it still hurts and it still has a potential to to take him down because even at, after making that run, like he's clearly like somewhat injured and exhausted after being shot so many times on his armor. Okay, so the Mandalorians take the bridge. Bosch won't tell her where the dark saber is. Uh, I'll let you live but you'll have to take me to him. Bosch commits suicide because he won't. And uh, this is kind of a star Wars version of like Nazi cyanide pills or something. Like he has like some kind of like a tech version of that. Yeah. It's like an electric charge that like he has in his mouth somewhere that he bites down on and it just completely fries him. Um, well, I, I just really loved the effect on his face. It reminded me a little bit of the uh, lightning coursing through vader's face but more uh, i don't know this was more horrifying actually yeah. somehow uh they save the ship from crashing uh mandalor uh, mando won't join them uh but the offer still stands and his bravery will not be forgotten uh i think this is interesting in this episode that we're kind of seeing a repeat of what happens in episode one with different results. So we have Mando who encounters what he believes to be uh, an imposter or imposters wearing Mandalorian armor. He's forced to work with them on a mission he get to get what he wants. Uh, you know, in the case of Cobb Vanth, we have a human in Mandalorian armor who shows himself to be honorable. In Bo-Katan, we have a real blooded Mandalorian who shows herself to be less than trustworthy. So uh, it, it's interesting that there's that kind of like, uh, you know, reverse mirror there. That Same with the, you know, the frog lady from before. She's also in. kind of spiteful, too, because she even throws back in his face the this is the way, you know, line in a in a very snarky kind of way. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think she she gave it to him in a in a snarky way in the cargo hold. But I think she means it here in yeah, the, yeah, on the bridge, sure. which I thought was an interesting yeah, yeah, reversal. That's, I'm sorry, I was referring back to the one when she, you know, she breaks the deal or, or changes it. So here's one of the big reveals. She tells him where he can find the Jedi. Uh, take the foundling to the city of Caledon on the forest planet of Corvus. Uh, there you can find Ahsoka Tano. Say you were sent by Bo-Katan. So um, 
I don't think there's any planet of Corvus in Star Wars canon, at least not that I could find. But there is a mid-sized Raider 2-class Corvette called the Corvus that was used by the Empire and then taken by the New Republic and then eventually becomes occupied by the First Order. But I don't think that's what she's talking about um, because she says the uh, on the forest planet of Corvus. Unless she's like fully doesn't trust him yet. I don't know. Who knows? Um, this next episode is directed by Carl Weathers. Do you think they would give Carl the first appearance of Ahsoka Tano? I... I mean, um, I, I doubt it. I feel like that has to go to Filoni. And if I'm I'm betting what the next episode might be is that maybe Mando has to go back to Navarro to get his ship like better repaired so that he can actually go to meet Ahsoka Tano and be more fully prepared for that. Yeah. And Filoni is supposedly directed episode five. So, I mean, I don't think we have a confirmation on that, but I think it's pretty much people. Assume he did that. write. He did write episode five. So yeah. we, we know that um, um, we know for sure that he that he's writing it. And I would be um, I would guess that he's going to direct that as well. So I'm kind of wondering, will we see Ahsoka Tano in the next episode? Will it be like what you say, like he has to get a ship fixed and then they have to go on a mission, get the money to get the fi- whatever. And then like at the end of the episode, he gets there and we see Ahsoka Tano or will we not see her until Filoni's episode in episode five? What do you guys I think? I think that's probably the safest bet because I wouldn't be surprised if um, we, we know that he meets back up with uh, Grief Karga and Cara Dune back on Navarro. We've seen a shot of it in the trailer. And actually, it makes sense because the shot we've seen of Mando coming back to Navarro in the trailer has him holding Baby Yoda and not having him in the pram. And since the pram just got destroyed, that makes perfect sense. And more than likely, he probably m- might even need to do a bounty job in order to pay to get his ship repaired since it's totally trash. So Grief perhaps being, um, you know, back in charge of things on Navarro maybe has a job for him to do so that he can get a ship fixed. Yeah. It's also interesting I, that she's, she's telling him where he can find a Jedi, but Ahsoka Tano at this point is not a Jedi. Right? I think uh, that distinction is uh, lost on people who aren't Jedi. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, she's someone with force abilities and she uses a lightsaber. She may as well be a Jedi. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, one thing I really loved about this episode is that it feels like it's putting moving pieces in place so that we don't have to like these developments can happen off camera, right? Like Moff Gideon, we learn in this episode that he's not just sitting around hunting for the Mandalorian. He's got much bigger plans that he's putting together that, that all these things are a part of. And he doesn't even know the Mandalorian or the child are involved in this situation with, with Titus Welliver's character. And we have Bo-Katan hunting him down. And so I feel like, you know, we've got uh, episode six or eight that, that, Robert Rodriguez is going to be responsible for, right? And I wouldn't be surprised if he's got the the final episode and it's this big showdown where all these threads are coming together where we figure out how Bo-Katan was coming into conflict with Moff Gideon who and and we know that that Giancarlo Esposito has been around saying he gets to fight with the dark saber a whole bunch and now I'm I'm starting to really reel with possibilities that he's going to be fighting Bo-Katan and she's, they're going to be fighting over the, the custody of the Darksaber. 
but that all of this stuff is happening off camera, right? Like the next time we catch up with these characters, they're not going to be frozen in amber, which is something I think a lot of writers fall into that trap where it's like, if it's happening off camera, we don't need to know about it. And it, they just pause while our hero is off doing his other thing. And I think this is setting it up so that things are going to move and advance absent the Mandalorian, which I think is the right way to handle this show. My worry as they brought in these these other elements, whether that's Boba Fett or or maybe not Boba Fett or Bo-Katan or Ahsoka Tano is that they would take over the story, but watching their story play out off camera while the Mandalorian focuses on his feels like the right way to play it. It is also very interesting that the series is doing that. It's it's not just about the journey of Mando trying to get the child back to his people or back to the Jedi. You know, there's all these different threads that are being introduced in the season. You know, you, you mentioned Boba Fett. You mentioned uh, Bo-Katan. Uh, we don't know where. I, I guess Ahsoka falls into the the, the main storyline. And we still have the, you know, the whole Moff Gideon is after the child. Um, so I, I feel like they're, they're starting to complicate things a bit, which is kind of interesting. Um, how do you think Ahsoka is going to play into the story? Um, I think I wouldn't be surprised if it's very much a similar situation to Luke in The Last Jedi or Force Awakens, um, where she doesn't necessarily want to do the the Padawan thing. She's not a Jedi. She doesn't want to rebuild that order. But I think there's a lot of questions having Ahsoka in this part of the timeline asks. For one, does he find her before or after she goes on that walkabout with Sabine Wren to find Ezra Bridger? The epilogue in Star Wars Rebels, where we last saw. Yeah, we should say spoiler alert for Star Wars Rebels, but okay, go ahead. Um, there's no date on that, right? That could happen at yeah. any point after the end of the war. And so maybe they haven't prepared to do that yet. Or maybe they've already gone and come back and that story is resolved. We don't know where that fits. But also, if Ahsoka Tano's around and people that are involved in galactic politics are aware of her, how does she fit into Luke Skywalker and his training and his journey of training, especially as we know that after the war, thanks to uh, pieces of, of media um, books and Battlefront 2, that he's out seeking any information he can find about the Jedi. Does she come in contact with Luke? Does this open the door to explaining what her interactions with with Luke are? And And in my view, I think Ahsoka and Luke are as much siblings as – Luke and Leia, right? Like they were both, um, like I, I think Ahsoka is what Luke and Leia could have been had Anakin and Padme been able to raise her, them, right? Because yeah. she had all that influence from Padme and had all that influence from Anakin and um, she kind of chose the right. And um, it, it, it asks those questions by putting her in this time in this timeline. And so I wouldn't be surprised if to answer some of those questions, they have her very much like Luke sort of like rejecting the, the dogma of the order. She doesn't want to train someone new because she doesn't want the order to exist the way it did. Maybe this is where Luke got some of those ideas that he needed to leave. Maybe that was a seed that Ahsoka planted. Also, I think that there might be um, an interesting idea where I'm not necessarily interesting idea, but I think that, considering that Ahsoka was around during the times of the Clone Wars, 
And there's a hint that the doctor from the first season of the Mandalorian has the uniform that references um, the same symbols uh, that we saw in the cloning facility where um, all the clone army was created and where Boba Fett was born. Genosha. Um, yeah. That, Kami, sorry, Kami, Camino. Yeah, yeah. Or Camino. 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 Yeah. Sorry, so that, yeah. that she might know maybe have like um, more about you know, the child than we, we think, or maybe she'll, she finds out that the, the, the facility is trying to do something with cloning again. And maybe that ignites her as like a call to action to like stop. So that, you know, something doesn't happen that happened during the clone wars before or something like that. I don't know. And it's, it's interesting there. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I I was gonna say, I also wonder, like you bring up Luke Skywalker and Ahsoka at this point doesn't consider herself a Jedi. I wonder if if that refusal to the call that you're speaking about is not about training. Like maybe she's like, I'm not a Jedi. There's only one Jedi in this galaxy. You need to find Luke Skywalker. Do you think they'll even touch that? Because I feel like that's getting too close to the Skywalker saga. I don't know. I didn't think they were going to touch Ahsoka Tano. I mean, I heard it report. I know you reported it. And, and I know we had conversations about this where I was like, I don't know. I just I don't know. <laughs> I just want to wait to see no if it happens. I'm going to do another and pat on my back. This episode. Uh, no, yeah, no, you deserve, you deserve the. Yeah. Katie Sackhoff is Bo-Katan. I, I exclusively reported that. And I reported uh, Ahsoka uh, being Rosario Dawson, which is half confirmed. Ahsoka's going to yeah. be in it, but we don't ha- um, know, have but, Rosario at this point. But it, that could be part of the mystery that leads off this, this season, right? They've already been greenlit for season three. We know it's happening. Um, and, you know, Sebastian stands just standing around going like, hey, I'm a period appropriate Luke Skywalker. Um, <laughs> For sure. You know, like it, it, anything, anything could happen. And that's what's so interesting about the show is that it's in this wide open piece of the the uh, the timeline that we don't know much about because Force Awakens um, left so many questions unanswered. You know, I kind of hated right? that about Force Awakens when it came out that like we didn't get much details there. But now it's like the the best thing it could have done, right? Because now there's like all those years that we can explore, and we literally all we need to know, like the only thing that we kind of learned was the rise of the First Order, right? Like we don't really know much in that time period, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it gives Favreau and Filoni like a really a really empty canvas. And as long as they can make things make sense as they lead toward those moments, um, then, then it'll, it'll make sense, especially as far as galactic politics goes. Um, you know, and, and, you know, there weren't, there wasn't anything about Mandalore or anything. I do think it's interesting that idea that, that you're talking about Brad, about how like maybe they're trying to restart the clone thing or something, but having Tamir Morrison involved opens the door to that. Having Ahsoka involved, I think opens the door to that. I think that opens the door to Rex too. And there is that throwaway line in force awakens where Kylo Ren is like, maybe Supreme leader Snoke should consider a clone army. And, um, you know, maybe this is that references back to this. If that, if that ties in. You know, Bob Iger had that that famous line on that earnings call or whatever where he was talking about how the Mandalorian is going to start to introduce, like, other characters that could spin off into their own uh, series and movies. And since I reported Ahsoka, I always thought that that was what he was talking about, that he was talking about that this is going to set up the Ahsoka series or movie. But now after seeing Bo-Katan, uh, Bo-Katan I, I think... M- Maybe there's something there. What do you guys think? 
I would love to see a show about Mandalorian politics. And that's, you know, before before we knew anything about the Mandalorian, I, I think I'm on the record somewhere saying I that's that's the show I'd rather see. I'm happy with what we got, but I yeah, think yeah. Disney Plus chasing that that Game of Thrones vibe with the competing houses of Mandalorians is a gold mine or a Beskar mine, as, as the case may be. <laughs> do, do you guys think we're actually going to see Sabine in, in the season? I know like some people had that that was highly rumored because I think of Sasha Banks's uh, involvement in the series. And, you know, she had kind of like the Sabine look in her wrestling persona. Um I mean, we do have the the, the graffiti in that first episode. Do, do you think it like? Do you think it's going to happen this episode? I mean, the season like obviously Ahsoka. If it could be in the timeline that Ahsoka is with Sabine, right? Like looking for Ezra. Yeah. But could but they didn't get together before that, right? Like it, it felt like in the epilogue that that was like the first well, time they kind of got together. So it felt that way, but it was also because in in that show again, spoilers for Rebels. Um, Ahsoka had faced off against Darth Vader and was sort of pulled out of time in the world between worlds and sort of deposited back stranded in that Sith temple on, on Malachor. And so we don't know how she got off of that planet. So she was left there. And then when we see her in the epilogue of rebels, she's, she's shrouded in white and that Gandalf, the white sort of, uh, symbolism and we don't know how she got off of that planet. We don't know when she got off of that planet. We don't know if she went straight to Sabine. There's so many unanswered questions as part of Ahsoka's journey uh, that, that we just we just don't have enough information to know. And Dave Filoni is willing to tease in the most horrible ways and play with our emotions about it. And even down to, you know, when Rise of Skywalker came out, we all just assumed, oh, well, Ahsoka must be dead by this point in the timeline because we're hearing her voice. Uh, in the montage of dead Jedi helping bolster Ray, and Filoni was like, "Not so fast." Like, remember how in Rebels, the the you know Yoda could commune with any of the Jedi or or Force sensitive people who are sufficiently strong enough uh, in Jedi temples or places of power of the Force uh, in from Dagobah, right? So maybe maybe there's just a lot more to Ahsoka's story and I don't think Dave Filoni is going to let her go without uh, <laughs> with, does he with, ever let anything go? no I mean and the next thing you know we'll have some wolves in in yeah. in Mandalorian sooner than later well isn't Dave Filoni's name as the X-Wing pilot? Oh, Trapper Wolf yeah Trapper Wolf so we, we got that uh, Brad what do you who do you think it's going to be the spinoff uh, the first spinoff. Of the I don't know. It's uh, it, it really the possibilities are open to be anybody at this point. Like it's with all the new character. Well, not new characters, but with all the characters they're bringing into the second season of the Mandalorian, you know, any one of them could have a path open to their own series. It's um the, you know, like we talked about on last episode, the, the rumor, you know, was that it might be a Boba Fett series, which well, you know, would make sense if he is able to get his armor back or even new armor. Um, if he gets his shit together, <laughs> literally. Um, if uh, I, it'd be what would be really be interesting actually is if he doesn't get his old armor back, but if he gets his prototype armor, the white armor that he was originally meant to have. Um, yeah. I think that would be kind of cool if he like you know took some stormtrooper armor, was able to turn it into his own or something like that. But I, I don't know, you know. But and seeing Bo-Katan in action this episode made me think, wow, you know, that would be uh, really really cool. But at the same time. 
that makes me think that maybe that's what Leslie Headland series is because we've heard that it's supposed to be female centric and involve martial arts. And there was some pretty crafty fighting being done by the Mandalorians in this episode. So I, the possibilities, you know, they're all there. And I really don't know one way or the other, which, which way it's going to go. Do, do you think that we're going to get multiple, like I thought... Star Wars TV series that is led by you know, people in Mandalorian armor. I, you know, I don't know. Last week I talked about how I wasn't super into that just because it's like, oh, cool. Here's another Mandalorian with a helmet on and bounty hunting. And here's these. Um, but if they're, I don't know if they're different enough and they, you know, they have such strong character traits that they don't feel like they're, they're super similar. Like we've obviously seen how, you know, much different Bo-Katan and her crew is from Mando and, and his people. So if it, as long as it's something like that, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to it in, in that way. Um, but I, it does make me wonder beyond the Obi-Wan series, how if the forthcoming Star Wars shows that are on the way are going to um, be interconnected more. Um, we know the Leslie Headland series isn't because they explicitly said that it takes place in a different part of the timeline. Yeah. Um, but well, Obi-Wan can't be connected because it's a oh, different part oh yeah of no yeah for sure i wasn't right? saying that that it would but but bob Iger yeah. specifically has said that you know that they were looking at you know developing spinoffs from this show so at the very least perhaps it'll be a thing similar to you know the star wars saga at large where we had you know here's the primary star wars saga with the skywalkers and then here's you know some spinoffs here and there that are separate maybe we'll have here's the primary mandalorians you know show and some spinoffs that are tied to it but then we also have these other stories elsewhere in the star wars universe well you think that's one of the things i think that's interesting is i kind of wrote off the idea that there could be other mandalorian series like a boba fett series or like a bo katan series like i i really thought it was going to be ahsoka because like i didn't think that they would do multiple TV series around Mandalorians, but now I'm kind of wondering if Disney is not looking at the Mandalorian as a a title in the Star Wars franchise, but instead now a, a franchise of its own, you know, a Mandalorian franchise, a sub-franchise of a Star Wars franchise. Does that make sense, Brian? Yeah, no, it, it that makes sense, and, and I don't see why, like, if they're, they're printing their own money with the Mandalorian... <laughs> Right. And I think Kathleen Kennedy knew they'd be printing their own money with a Boba Fett TV show and the or a Boba Fett movie. And they they've tried twice to get that out there. Um, and so the success, the rampant success of a Mandalorian show without Boba Fett is probably telling them that, like, people want Mandos. And I if why not, you know, give the people what they want. Did you guys have any final thoughts on this episode, chapter eleven of the Mandalorian? I I really liked it. Yeah, I really too. enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with it. I mean, I'll be honest. Like, I really love seeing those characters uh, return. I love seeing characters return, and I was just sort of misty eyed the entire time I was watching this, especially as I saw that night owl helmet drop in the first time. Um. <laughs> Cause it was like, there's only one of like four people it could be. And it was one of them. And it, it just, it expanded the star Wars universe in some ways. It connected it and made it smaller in other ways. And it really advanced. I think it, the one thing I, I don't think we talked enough about this episode was how it sort of advanced or, or at least juxtapo- juxtaposed the 
different methods of parenting that the child is exposed to. Mm-hmm. And he actually had an arc in this episode and it was really fascinating. And I think it had a lot to do with those competing philosophies that we talked about with, with how the heiress could represent different things. What, what is the arc for you? Because I, we didn't talk about the end scene where the child is playing with that small frog baby in a dish, which I'm assuming is the completion of that arc. Yeah, I think, I think, I think, um, the, the arc for the, the child is, um, you know, some to, sometimes food fights back, right? Like <laughs> the, the, him just eating things indiscriminately and then getting in trouble for it is what happened to him last episode. This, this episode, he's going to dig into the chowder and it starts eating him. And then he's left with the frog, uh, the frog family and they're teaching him like compassion and they're not letting him eat, eat the eggs. They're probably feeding him other stuff and they're nurturing him through what that cycle of life is like for other species. And he's, he's learning things, right? Like toddlers, if he's a toddler, are sponges for that sort of like modeled behavior. And so I think we're going to get a more um, mindful child through the rest of the season. You know, when Mando tells the child when he's trying to drag him out of that house at the end and uh, he congratulates them and he's like, uh, like the, the child's kind of like says he wants like the, the frog baby thing. He says, no, I have enough pets. I thought to myself, like, does Mando even have any pets or is he talking about the child? I guess he's talking yeah, about definitely. the child, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brad, any last thoughts on No, this I, I really liked it. You know, I will say as somebody who is not as deeply ingrained in uh, the animated side of Star War- the Star Wars universe and, like, you know, I haven't been, you know, caught up in the, the immense love that there is for Clone Wars and Ahsoka Tano and Rebels and all that kind of thing. It was, it, it was still really exciting to see that part of Star Wars mythology brought into, you know, live action Star Wars. And, you know, even people who don't follow that side of Star Wars, I think you know, will be compelled to be like, oh, crap, who are these, you know, cool characters? Just because, you know, Bo-Katan was given an entrance like she was a new character. And like, it was like, whoa, this is this is somebody who is badass, you know? Uh, and if somebody somehow doesn't know who Ahsoka Tano is, they'll be intrigued by the mystery of like, where, you know, who is this and um, who's this Jedi and where, where are they going? So I, is it, I think it's, while I am cautious about how much um you know of familiar star wars mythology and characters they're bringing into the mandalorian as opposed to branching out and doing new things i do think that it is cool how they are connecting to these these aspects of star wars that we a lot of people never thought we would ever see in live action form yeah well dave filoni and i guess now john favreau they're they're just really good at doing this fan service in a way that it doesn't feel bad like like all of this could have been bad like involving these characters, exploring these things, having, you know, Boba Fett, I, I guess Brian still is on the edge of if, if that's bad or not. But <laughs> but I, 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 I think I don't know. I think they're handling it really well. And I'm, I'm really excited about where this this series and this franchise is going. So, yeah. Yeah. No. And I was actually wondering about that. How will this play to somebody who's not into all of the lore? And into the animated series. And and I wonder if this is part of Disney's strategy, right? Like just connect things even loosely to, to itself so that people are watching more and more Disney+. Plus. I've had so many people tell me they've been looking like 
they've been trying to figure out like after the dark saber came out they're like oh i want to look at that and then they're like oh it's been in star wars before and then they start watching at least those episodes um maybe we'll get the same thing with bo katan and i almost wish they had like you know how hbo does that with like westworld or, or game of thrones where they have the after the episode uh behind the scenes thing and i almost wish they had have that with these because i feel like they're missing an opportunity to send these viewers to the Cone wars and be like oh this because I, I could totally see what Brad's saying. I could totally see someone who's never seen Clone Wars or Rebels and watches this. And you don't need to know that those are characters from before. Like, But like, I feel like if I saw this in, in the same way that um, I'm sure many people saw Avengers and when Thanos showed up at the end, they're like, oh, I got to go read some comics and find out who Thanos is. Um, and I, I wish that they would take advantage of that more. But yeah. Anyways, uh, you can find Brian. I'll link in the show notes Brian's uh, piece on this week's Mandalorian in the show notes. You can find more of all of our work slash from the com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter slash from the com. Uh, leave your name and general geographic location in case we mentioned the email on the air. You know, if you, you saw something we didn't see some kind of e- Easter egg reference, have a theory, have speculation, send it to us. Uh, if it's interesting, we'll mention it on the air. Uh, please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you on Monday. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.